Hello everyone, and welcome to Secondhand Stories. I'm your host, Jim Zabo. Happy New Year to you, and thanks for coming back to slow down and listen up with us again in 2017. Our last episode, where an author read their own submission, has been immensely popular by our standards, and so we're going to feature another author-read submission in this episode. It is called The Stetson by Lynn Knight. Lynn grew up in New Mexico and has set a novel there, as well as several short stories, including this one. She currently lives in Seattle. She's had short stories published in Bellingham Review and the Santa Fe Literary Review. One of Lynn's recent stories placed third in the 2016 PNWA Literary Contest. Here's Lynn Knight reading her story, The Stetson. The Stetson. Granddad was a hard man to shop for. As we drove from the southern tip of New Mexico to his home in the northeast corner of the state, I fretted about what to get him for Christmas. My sister Bess was eight and my brother Burton was seven. Nobody expected much from them beyond their usual gifts of cigars and handkerchiefs, but I was eleven and really wanted to get Granddad something special. During a school craft project, I'd made him a snowy white candle rolled in glitter, but Burton lit it up when I wasn't looking, and it was now a glob of sparkly wax. I had nothing for Grandad. Our drive was long, so I had plenty of time to think on it. The star-speckled night reminded me of Mom's enamel cooking pot. The little kids conked out somewhere after Tularosa. My parents discussed last month's election. They had campaigned for Kennedy, and to hear them talk, everything was going to be better with the new president and his beautiful wife. I interrupted them to ask Mom what she thought I should get Grandad for Christmas. Don't worry, Joni, Mom said. You can get him something at Woolworths. They'll be open tomorrow. Woolworths? Dad glanced at me in the rearview mirror. We both knew Grandad was no five-and-dime man. He once owned a spread near the New Mexico-Oklahoma border and lost his cattle and land to blizzards and banks. One winter storm was so bad, his longhorns froze to death standing up. He found them days later by the tips of their horns poking through the snowdrifts. Later, Grandma Celise died, giving birth to the youngest boy, Paul. Seventeen years later, that same boy died trying to break a wild horse that kicked him in the head. Then World War II came along. My dad and Uncle Chap made it through, but their younger brother Samuel was mowed down by the Germans on Omaha Beach. When I tried to talk to Grandad about the people and things he'd lost, he'd changed the subject. Folks around Clayton still called him chief out of respect, though he'd retired from the fire department before I was born. Even Dad said, yes, sir, no, sir, to Grandad. Like I said, a hard man to shop for. Woolworths wasn't nearly good enough for him. We arrived at Grandad's early in the morning. His old house had a steeply pitched roof and faded clapboard. We kids ran up to the front porch and knocked on his door. He was awake and ready for us, dressed as always in a clean white shirt buttoned up to his neck and down to his wrists. A tin of tobacco peeped from the pocket. He wore dark wool trousers tucked into black cowboy boots. His leather belt had a longhorn buckle. And the finishing touch? A worn gray Stetson, its crown creased deep down the middle. With his hat on, Grandad was a cowboy hero straight from the westerns I loved. Minus the Stetson, he was just another old man with liver-spotted hands. Maybe he knew that. And maybe that's why he wore his hat most everywhere, even indoors, where he was supposed to take it off. When he hugged us, he smelled like tobacco and ivory soap. I anxiously watched his face for a smile. It was hard to see his eyes behind the glint of his glasses, but he seemed glad to see us. When he stared up at the cottony sky and said it might snow for Christmas, Burton and Bess punched each other excitedly. Grandad led us inside his sparely furnished house. In the parlor, a skinny Christmas tree sat in a corner with no presents underneath it. We brought our gifts in and plumped them up around the tree. We kids banged away at his rickety, out-of-tune piano while he whipped up bacon and eggs and toast slathered with real butter. I love the smell of his kitchen, the faint stink of stove gas mixed with bacon, butter, and coffee. Back home, Mom never used butter, only margarine. 
She wouldn't let us drink Cokes either, but Granddad kept his refrigerator stocked, and every day when he walked to the Safeway for groceries, he bought more Cokes because he loved the stuff as much as we did. After breakfast, my parents caught a nap in the upstairs bedroom because they'd taken turns driving through the night. I phoned our cousin Mars to let him know we'd arrived. Then we kids followed Granddad to his office next door, which was a miniature replica of his house. It was my all-time favorite place, and I wished I could live there forever. A hand-painted sign over the door read, Warren, Samuel, Chapman, Adair, and Sons. Inside, there was just enough room for a pigeonhole desk, two leather armchairs, a worn rug, a hand-crank telephone on the wall, a small heater hissing in the corner, and a brass spittoon that Grandad was never shy about using. He eased into his chair and pulled out a card deck for a game of coon can. Burton and Bess sat cross-legged on the rug. I, being the oldest, got the other chair. While Grandad removed the jacks, queens, and kings from the deck, I asked him what he wanted for Christmas. I had to yell it a couple of times. He shook his head and smiled. Got everything I need, he said. You're all here. He always said that, but I didn't believe him. He shuffled and dealt our cards, then studied his hand. He nodded to me and said, I believe it's your turn, Miss Joni. After we played a warm-up hand, Burton and Bess wanted a story from Grandad. It was always the same one, the hanging of the train robber Black Jack Ketchum. Grandad had been an eyewitness to the big event. We knew the story, but we always asked for another telling, because Grandad would add a little something each time. As usual, he wasn't too talkative, so Bess had to pump him. I forgot, Grandad, she said. Didn't you say they sold little blackjack dolls at the hanging? Yep. Did you buy one? Nope. Bess said, I wish you had, because then you could have saved it all these years and given it to me. Grandad picked up a card from the discard pile and worked it into his hand. I asked him, what were his last words? I knew what blackjack said. I just wanted to get him going. Grandad wiped his mouth with his handkerchief. All he said was, Goodbye, please dig my grave very deep. And then, All right, now hurry up. Burton said, How close were you to the hanging? Close enough that I don't ever want to see one again. Whose turn is it? Mine. Burton picked a card from the pile. Tell us what you saw, Grandad. After some begging from Bess, Grandad adjusted his glasses and said, I don't want to give you children nightmares. Your mother would be mad at me. Burton and Bess swore they wouldn't tell Mom. Granddad looked over our heads, looked back into the old days. Burton and Bess scooted closer to hear him better. Well, he said, understand that nobody in Clayton had ever hanged a man before, and they miscalculated. The rope was too long. What happened? Bess asked. Black Jack was decapitated when he dropped through the trapdoor. Granddad went on, neatly arranging his cards. We kids stopped playing while we absorbed the gruesome information. Burton asked, What's it mean? It means his head popped off, I said. Burton was impressed. Wow, did you see the head, he asked Granddad. No, I didn't, Granddad said. I understand the doctor sewed it back onto his body. But why, I asked. He was already dead. Because it was the right thing to do, Grandad sat back in his chair. We finished the hand, which he won. As we started another, I was distracted by Black Jack's botched hanging. I felt sorry for him. But I didn't understand why the doctor sewed Black Jack's head onto his body. Our card game stopped when Cousin Mars and his parents drove up in their new green Cadillac. The adults headed into Grandad's house to wake up my folks while we kids played on the front porch. Our cheeks turned red in the frosty air, and our breath hung above our heads like cartoon captions. Mars was an only child. His mom named him after her dad, Marston, which we kids only called him when he made us mad. He was glad to see us because there were three of us to play with. After he bragged about the loot he was getting for Christmas, I took him aside. He was ten a year younger than me, and shorter by two inches. He could ride faster, throw farther, and yell louder, but I could beat him at checkers and monopoly, so he grudgingly treated me as an equal. Mars, I said, what did you get Grandad for Christmas?
Mom got him an electric blanket. Well, what are you going to get him, I asked. Nothing, Mars said. I'm a kid. We should buy him something nice, I said, not from Woolworths. Mars kicked out a couple of gift ideas, an archery set, a pair of skis. Mars, those are things you want. He shrugged. Granddad could use them. He's not too old to learn. I asked him, how much money you got? Fifteen dollars and fifty-two cents, he said. I counted this morning. Well, what do you say we go in together and buy him something nice? How much you got, Mars asked. I think maybe, oh, two dollars and fourteen cents. He sneered, and I had to talk fast to get him to go in with me on Granddad's gift. He only agreed because it was Christmas. We told the little kids they couldn't come with us, and we walked the ten blocks to Mars' house to raid his piggy bank. His parents had a brick split level, the very latest style in Clayton. Inside was all dark and hushed like a museum. It looked like nobody sat on that perfect white sofa. His mom would have had a hissy fit if she lived with us kids. Mars cleaned out his piggy bank, and we headed for Main Street, two blocks away. The town of Clayton, surrounded by empty prairie, seemed protected from the rest of the world. With its hitching post and boardwalks, it felt like stepping back into cowboy times. As we passed Woolworths, Mars paused at the windows, staring at the bright display of toys. Keep walking, I told him. We aren't going in there. We came to the Union County Western Emporium, a place I'd never been in. Its faded, dusty displays didn't catch my eye. Mars stopped to look at the zombie mannequins decked out in plaid shirts with pearl buttons and stiff indigo blue jeans. He said, You know what Granddad really needs? A new hat. He was right. Granddad's hat looked pretty beat up. I smiled approvingly at Mars, and he turned the doorknob. A bell tinkled above us as we entered the creaky-floored emporium. The empty store smelled like leather and dust, and it felt like we were the first ones to enter in about a hundred years. A lady as old or older than Grandad crept from behind the glass counter. We'd like to see your hats, Mars said grandly. The lady led us to a back wall. Among the rows of hats, the Stetsons had their own shelf. Blacks, grays, and tans. Some had braided leather trim. Some had straps with silver buttons. There was only one the color of Grandad's, a gray as soft and pretty as a morning dove. It was plain but dignified. I wanted to run my fingers across its nap, but the sales lady wouldn't let me. We'll take it, Mars said. The sales lady looked skeptical. You got $25 plus tax on you? Because that's what you're going to need to take this hat home. It's for our granddad, Mars said. You know Warren Adair, don't you? He was the fire chief. The sales lady didn't soften. Sonny, your grandpa could be the president of the United States of America, and that hat is still going to cost you $25 plus tax. Mars scowled. And I asked the lady, have you got any hats that cost um, $15 plus tax? Glaring at us like we were pesky mosquitoes, she led me to the rear of the store. Mars didn't follow, and when I looked back at him, he winked. You go on, he whispered. The sales lady pointed to a straw hat that was dumber looking than the dummy's head it was perched on. It was something a farmer would wear, not granddad. She let me know it was the best I could hope for. The front door bell tinkled, and we both turned. But the view was blocked by a lady mannequin in a once-red squaw dress faded to pink. I decided to forget the hat and instead buy granddad a shirt. I picked out a nice one with navy blue stripes, and it only cost $9.99 plus tax. I needed Mars to help pay for the shirt, but he was nowhere in the store. I guess he got tired of waiting, I told the sales lady. She didn't bother to act nice. Come back before five if you want it. I didn't see Mars anywhere outside, so I headed back to Granddad's. As I passed Rexall Drugstore on the corner, I heard a, Hey! Mars popped out from the recessed entryway and joined me. Before I could tell him we had to buy that shirt for Granddad, he whipped out the gray Stetson from the Union County Western Emporium. I stared at the hat. It was beautiful, but you stole it, I whispered. Mars frowned at me like I was dense. You wanted something nice, so here it is. He didn't seem the least bit guilty. I felt sick, and not just because we might get caught, but it was such a beautiful hat. And Mars said if we took it back, 
The sales lady would call the sheriff, and we'd spend Christmas in jail. As I worried about the stolen hat, we kept walking, and before I knew it, we were back at Granddad's. The Buick and Cadillac were gone, and the house empty, which meant my family and Mar's parents must have gone for a ride. I peeked in the window of Granddad's office. He was sitting at his pigeonhole desk, staring at the wall. Mars said, good, the coast is clear. He shoved the hat at me. You wrap it, okay? I gotta go. I stepped back like he handed me a rattlesnake. I can't do it, Mars. We're gonna get caught. Did you see that old lady? I bet she's half blind. She won't even know the hat's missing. He was likely right. Still, I didn't want to take the hat. He said, I stole it. You gotta wrap it. That's only fair. We're in this together, so come on. He held out the hat. I snatched it and hurried up the porch steps. I paused at the screen door to watch him run home. I wanted to throw the Stetson in the deepest, darkest closet of Granddad's house. But as I stood wondering what to do with it, I couldn't help but stroke its velvety nap and run my fingers around the strong brim. Even if it was stolen, that Stetson belonged on Granddad's head. My heart didn't stop thudding as I searched for wrapping paper. I couldn't find any, so I put this hat in a Safeway grocery bag and swiped a red bow from one of my presents. I took the gift tags and printed on the other side, to Granddad, from Mars, and Joan. I didn't feel any better after wrapping the hat. I shoved it to the far corner under Granddad's Christmas tree and heaped other presents on top of it. The rest of Saturday and all day Sunday, my heart jumped every time the phone rang. Fortunately, Granddad didn't have a television, so my parents couldn't watch the evening news. I woke up early to get the Sunday newspaper from Granddad's front yard. I wanted to see if Mars and I made the front page, but we weren't anywhere to be found. We had to go to Mars' house for Christmas Eve dinner. Uncle Chap was a heavier, taller, jokier version of my dad. The two brothers didn't see eye to eye on much, except for beer and whiskey shots. They stood on Uncle Chap's perfect front lawn and stared at the quiet street while their cigarette smoke mingled with their frosty breath. They talked about the snow and whether it was coming or not, and if it did come, how much would they get compared to other years? Inside, Aunt Florine kept an eye on Burton and Bess so they wouldn't mess up her white couch or pale pink carpet. Her Christmas tree was aluminum and went all the way to the ceiling. It hogged half the wall and glittered, winked, and blinked like a hired entertainer. Later, Mar showed off the presents under the tree. All the big ones were his. The little kids were struck dumb with envy, but I was fed up with his bragging. He didn't ask about Granddad's hat, and I didn't offer anything either. When dinner was done... Instead of joining Mars and the kids in the basement to admire you-know-who's Lionel train set, I lurked around the adults while they smoked and drank and talked about the old days. If they were going to bring up what Mars and I did yesterday, I wanted to be the first to know. But Granddad got sleepy early, so we left before any discussion about crime. The next morning, I woke up excited because it was Christmas. I jumped out of bed and ran to the window to check outside. It hadn't snowed last night. The sky was bright and clear. I remembered Granddad's hat. What had I been thinking? Maybe there was still time to whisk the hat from under the tree. I could hide it under the bed that Bess and I were sharing. But everyone was awake and waiting for me at the dining table, and someone would notice if I sneaked the present from the parlor. Granddad had been up before all of us and warmed a foil tray of cinnamon buns. The rule on Christmas morning was we had to eat a little something before we opened presents. I couldn't touch my cocoa. I couldn't even lick the frosting off my cinnamon bun. As usual, the little kids were dying to open their gifts, but I sat at the table with the adults as they finished their coffee and talked again about the old days, which made me feel worse. In the old, old days, they hanged thieves. I tried not to think about Black Jack's decapitation. The phone rang in Granddad's kitchen, and my dad answered it. I wondered if the cops were calling. I lost my nerve and left the table to join the little kids in the parlor, where they were squeezing, poking, and shaking the unopened presents. After many minutes, Granddad came and settled in his rocker. When I sat cross-legged on the carpet beside him, he absent-mindedly patted my head. He had never said a mean word to me, let alone raise his hand. But according to Mom... 
Granddad had been so hard on Dad that he ran away from home as a teenager. My parents joined us in the parlor, and I avoided looking at them. Dad tried to keep order, passing out the presents one at a time. That plan didn't last long. My brother and sister tore into their gifts, and soon Granddad's parlor was strewn with wrapping paper and ribbons. I got what I expected, sweater sets and socks, puzzles and PJs. Granddad smiled at Burton's Lincoln Logs and listened to Bess's baby doll cry when she yanked the string on its back. He allowed that the flannel robe Mom bought him would keep him warm as toast. He passed out Christmas cards to us kids. Inside each was a five-dollar bill, so crisp and clean it must have come straight from the U.S. Mint in Denver. All the presents were opened except one. I hoped nobody noticed mine, but Burton, scavenging under the tree, held up the grocery bag and shouted, This one's for Grandpa from Joan and Mars. He set the present in Granddad's lap. It sure seemed like everything got quiet all of a sudden. Was it my imagination, or did Mom and Dad shoot looks at each other? I wished Mars were here, but he was at home opening his ton of presents. Granddad stared down at the gift sitting in his lap, but didn't touch it. Burton attacked, saying, I'll open it for you, Grandpa. And before I could stop him, my little brother tore apart the grocery bag and fished out the soft, gray Stetson. Granddad took it from Burton and looked inside it, like there was a secret in there just for him. He toyed with the brim. Nice hat, he said. Mighty nice. The morning light from the window hit his glasses just right, and his gaze fastened on me. He knew about the hat. I felt sick again, like I had betrayed him. A quick glance at my parents told me that they knew, too. I held my breath, wondering what kind of hell I was about to catch. Dad said Granddad would beat him with a leather strap when he disobeyed. Granddad held out the hat and pinched a crease along its crown. He took off his old hat, put the new Stetson on, and adjusted it. Burton and Bess busted out laughing. Mom and Dad smiled. Slowly, the way an ancient sea turtle would smile, if indeed they do, a grin broke across Granddad's face. The hat was too small. It perched on his head like a joke of a hat. Nice hat, he said again. But a tad small, isn't it? Yeah, I said. He lifted the new hat from his head and pushed out the crease, making the crown smooth again. He put his old Stetson back on. My parents glanced at each other and gave me a you-are-in-big-trouble-young-lady kind of look. I wondered if the cops were coming to arrest me. If they took me to jail, would Granddad get me out? When Dad was a boy, Granddad once made him sleep in the barn for a whole winter day without meals because he forgot to feed the cows and horses. How long would I have to stay in jail before Granddad decided I had learned my lesson? Dad cleared his throat and said sternly, Joni. But Granddad shook his head and motioned for Dad to leave. My parents corralled the little kids and left us alone. Granddad sat with the stolen hat on his lap. I waited for his wrath. I planned to plead for mercy. I thought about dragging Mars into it, too, but I was in this pickle on my own. I'd been against stealing the hat and still let Mars talk me into it. Granddad frowned like he wanted to say something angry. He said, Best to return the hat, don't you think? I nodded. He continued, I know you weren't in this alone, so tomorrow morning you, me, and Marston are going to pay a little visit to where you got this. He still didn't sound angry, just matter of fact. And the two of you will have to endure the consequences. I didn't know what consequences meant, but it sounded better than jail time. I'm really sorry, Granddad. I can see that. Slowly he rocked back and forth, staring out the window at the bright Christmas sky. He said, I appreciate the thought. His voice was so low I strained to hear him. That's much more important than any old hat. I wanted to sob with relief, but I caught myself. Granddad handed me the Stetson, and I held it by fingertips at the very edge of its brim so I wouldn't dirty it. I held it away from me, slightly raised, and what flashed into my mind 
was that doctor who had done the right thing for Blackjack by sewing his separated head back onto his body. Thank you, Lynn, for the nice story and reading. You'll notice that the story was Christmas-themed, and I know Christmas has come and gone, but we wanted to run these stories now instead of waiting all the way until next Christmas, because that really didn't seem fair to the authors. Okay, our second and last story today is called The Cowbell by A.R. Robbins. A.R. is a public school teacher who is currently acquiring a master's in English. Robbins is married to a goofy, wonderful man and has two cats and no children. A.R. has never been published in a professional sense and is an avid fan of podcasts. Here is A.R. Robbins' story, The Cowbell. We meet at the same restaurant every year for the staff Christmas party. And every year, the teachers vote for chicken, mashed potatoes, stuffed mushrooms, and apple cobbler. Every year, the male teachers pray for roast beef. But the women vote for chicken. And there are more women. So, that is what we eat. Our English teacher fills her plate with mashed potatoes. She does not eat meat, and we have all agreed that that is fine. We don't bother her much about it. There are plenty of mashed potatoes. Our history teacher cannot eat seafood, so he avoids the mushrooms, which are filled with something that smells like fish. Two years ago, our principal had to stab the history teacher in the arm with an EpiPen. Now the history teacher avoids the mushrooms. We chew our food which the school board paid for. So delicious. They rented this room. So spacious. So pretty. We look forward to this party every year. The secretaries say the tree is beautiful. Yes, the school board has outdone themselves this year. The history teacher notices that the tree is the same as it was last year. The same snowflake ornaments. The same yellow lights the same silver plastic star. He knows that the school board knows that the restaurant staff decorates the room, but they say thank you to the secretaries regardless. Perhaps the school board does not know why they are saying thank you. Perhaps they are not really listening to the secretaries. Perhaps no one is listening to the secretaries, who sound like angels with their soft voices. Everything is so pretty. So nice. We always look forward to this day. For some of us, this is the only time we see this room. A small space filled with rows of tables, a tree, and a buffet cart. One part of the wall opens out into the rest of the restaurant, but we cannot see the other patrons because our view is obstructed by the cash register. The opposing wall has an exit to the parking lot, and most of us use this door when we enter this space. We do not want to see the other patrons. Tonight, we are separate from them. Tonight we will play Bad Santa, and when we do, the principal will flash his moon smile so that we cannot tell if he is being genuine or ironic. Half of us believe that he loves this game, and we know that he was the one who had brought the cowbell so many years ago. Half of us believe he once loved this game, back when he was a young science teacher when he had the option to skip the party and fall asleep with his new wife in their tiny, twin bed. He never skipped the party when he was young, even then with his wife who smelled like blue smoke and mint, who was so small and lovely. His wife, who grinned sleepily in the mornings before he left her to teach his students about chlorophyll. He always came to the party, and she never came. This year, he says she is busy cleaning the house for family. We do not press him. During his first year of teaching, he purchased a box of tiddlywinks for the tree. The tiddlywinks were an inside joke between him and the old math teacher. However, the old math teacher did not come to the party that year, and he did not remember the joke when it was told to him later. The old math teacher had not come to the Christmas party since his first heart attack, but the young science teacher, who is now our principal, did not know this then. He did not know about the footsteps of time and the slow gnawing of our bodies. 
He only knew that no one laughed at the tiddlywinks during Bad Santa. It was an inside joke, so no one laughed. It might have been this shame that kept him coming back. Perhaps he wanted to prove himself to us. For two years, he only brought lottery tickets, and we did not remember he had brought them, because it was a neutral sort of gift, easily forgettable. It is the gift the history teacher brings, and none of us remember that he brings them. Though we never laughed at our principal's gifts, he still came every year, hopeful, knowing that someday he would get it right. And every year he would leave his young wife, who lay home in bed with her children, their son's lithe body curled around her shoulders, their daughter lying across her warm stomach. One year, he discovered the cowbell tucked inside a box at a garage sale. This was his salvation, and ours. It is what we look forward to most every year. Before we play Bad Santa, we eat, and some of us line up for seconds. The chicken is delicious, not too dry. And when we are in line, we are solemn, our hands folded in front of us, as if in prayer. The young teachers whisper to each other, but even they choose only to remark about the food. At the tables, we speak to each other politely, trying to avoid the topic of work. The secretaries speak about their grandchildren, and their husbands look down at their plates and swallow their unsweet tea. Others speak emptily of holiday plans. The loudest among us is the business teacher who was upset because she ordered a Sprite, but the waitress had poured water from a heavy pitcher into her half-empty glass. Her face is turning red as those grapes from the fancy grocery store on the other side of town. Some of us at other tables giggle nervously about the business teacher. We know that the waitress's mistake is an easy one, and her anger is funny in an awkward way. She's the sort of woman who gets worked up no matter where she is, and some of us know that her contract will not be renewed for the next year, that she is a loud woman who will always be loud. Some of us knew she would not be asked back the moment we met her. Those of us who knew did not warn her. The principal sits with the superintendent and the school board at the front of the room. He does not speak to the others, listening pensively to their idle remarks. His face is serious, stern, the sort of face that seems angry until it speaks. He does not speak often, so the younger teachers among us describe him to their families as very severe. Some of us are afraid of him, but many of us remember him in his youth, when he taught science, how funny he could be, a voice like a festival cannon. We loved him for his loud optimism. The waitresses move like shadows. They have taken our dirty plates, and each of us is given a piece of apple cobbler. The English teacher eats her piece of cobbler, and she does not ask the waitress if it was made with lard. More than likely it was not, but usually she asks restaurant staff this question because she's that sort of person. Not tonight. Tonight, she eats her cobbler and compliments the librarian's sweater. Quietly, we think of the cowbell. It is not something we talk about. There would be no way to talk about the cowbell. We only think about it softly, so softly that we are not aware of our thoughts. The school board president says it is time for left-right-center, so we push our tables to the edge of the room and form a circle with our chairs. Our voices ripple together as we navigate our bodies into position. We pretend that this is the game we look forward to every year, because it is a fun game, a game we can only play together. Our principal sets a chair down in the center. We are a collective bullseye, each holding three $1 bills in our left hand. We smile and pretend to be excited that one of us will go home with all of the money, and we think softly of the cowbell. The women fold their skirts over their knees and the men open their legs over their seats, while the principal reminds us of the rules. His voice moves through us, and the younger teachers forget their criticisms of him. 
it is that sort of night. What a wonderful game. We play it every year. One of us, a woman with short black hair, rolls the dice. Only some of us know that she is the basketball coach's fiance. She passes a dollar to the left and a dollar to the right, and now she only has one dollar. We are relieved because she is not one of us. The music teacher rolls the dice now. Two dollars go to the center. What bad luck. She's expecting a child. Her round belly stretches out her thin, striped dress so that we can see the outline of her belly button. She's about to burst. Stick a fork in her. A boy at that. Now her husband rolls the dice. He has to give his wife a dollar, and we laugh because he will not let it go. I know where you sleep, he says, and now we are a rumble of laughter. It is the Spanish teacher's turn. She keeps all of her money, but we know that the game has just begun. We know that she will lose her money soon, because we know that she is not lucky. Last year, she was asked to go on the senior trip, even though she was not a class sponsor, and it worked out that she had to drive behind the school bus the entire trip with her car filled with suitcases. This is not the sort of thing they would have asked the new math teacher to do, and the home ec teacher would have laughed in their faces. The poor Spanish teacher did not even have cruise control, and we all know she's a nervous driver. And we cannot forget about the day she was changing in her classroom because she had parent-teacher conferences that night and did not have time to go home. She forgot to lock her door, or perhaps she did not think to lock her door because everyone had gone home to freshen up. Everyone but the janitor and the janitor's son. The son, an eager student, stayed at school to work in the computer lab. He knew she was in her room. He had a question about his homework. She's a difficult grader. She hopes that we do not remember that this happened, but it is not the sort of thing that any of us could forget, because each of us is afraid of this or something like this happening to us. We are grateful it happened to her. We all have our roles to play. We each take our turns with the dice. The business teacher is the first one out of money, and she cusses loudly. One of those harsh cuss words we all said when we were in middle school. We titter nervously because we know she is pretending to be ironic. Most of us will be thankful to be rid of her. Soon, there are only four of us with money. The school board president, the superintendent's wife, the history teacher, and the counselor. We hope it is the counselor who wins the money. The music teacher is our first choice, but we would be just as happy with the counselor. We hear rumors that she will be engaged soon. We want this sort of story to tell ourselves. But it is the history teacher who wins. He smiles. We cannot help but smile for him. He has this way about him. Popular with the students popular with the parents. The sort of guy who jokes casually about the EpiPen incident, so that we laugh and do not have to remember that he almost died in front of us. We are thankful for him. He reminds us that we are good. We are lucky to have him. And what is he doing now? We cannot believe it. He gives the money to the music teacher and shakes her husband's hand. We applaud. It is almost as good as the time the homecoming queen gave her crown to the junior with Down syndrome in front of the entire school. Oh, what a roar there was. Not a dry eye in the place. Only our yearbook sponsor knows that the girl still wanted to be named homecoming queen on the yearbook page. When we are done applauding and patting each other on the shoulder, we move all the tables back into rows. Some of us go outside to smoke while others order non-alcoholic eggnog. This is not a drinking party, though we know that other schools sometimes have parties with alcohol. Afterward, 
the younger teachers among us will go to the Irish bar downtown for a few beers and make jokes that the others do not understand. The young teachers are hopeful and will laugh with each other in an honest way. The rest of us will go home to prepare for our vacation. After tonight, some of us will spend the next weeks opening our homes to the people we love, and others will merely rest and pretend we are not bothered by the loneliness. And we will each have our secrets, and we will each struggle against regret. And all of us will remember another time, and all of us will try to forget the aching truth of our bodies. We will not speak of it. We will endure. But tonight, we are in this room, and we are separate from others, and soon we will not think about it much. We will only think of the cowbell. The English teacher is thinking now of a sonnet a student wrote for his midterm project, a terrible poem full of beautiful nonsense. We walk, we walk, we walk in wooden shoes. Two points for repetition. Two points for alliteration. Four points for iambic pentameter. She cannot remember the rest, only the first line, and it rolls around in her mouth like shoes in a dryer. She recites it quietly between sips of eggnog. The new math teacher smokes outside and thinks about the business teacher's round body because he cannot help but think about her body. It is the sort of body that men think about. The Spanish teacher smokes with him and rattles off something meaningless about her husband's insurance, and she thinks about the heater in her classroom. Had she remembered to turn it off for Christmas vacation? She knew she would have to go back to the school after the party. She would have to check. The history teacher is talking to the music teacher's husband about children. He also has children, and he remembers his own wife's round belly, how he would rub coconut oil into the seams of her stomach while she hummed something soft, and he wonders if it is the same with them, if their happiness is like his happiness. The music teacher listens while they talk to each other, and she looks at the history teacher's bright face, and she remembers the day the principal stabbed him in the arm with an EpiPen. She had been the one who noticed the swollen face and red throat. He had been telling her some banal detail about his new car, and then he was no longer speaking, but choking, and his hands were scratching at his neck. She had been the first one to recognize the fear of death in his eyes. The principal listens to the school board talk amongst themselves by the tree, and no one knows what he is thinking, but many of us suspect he thinks of his wife. She used to be so pretty, and we know that he loved her dearly in those early years. And now our principal smiles in his moon sort of way, and we find our seats. It is time to begin, bad Santa. We have already put our presents under the tree. We eye the other packages. It could be hiding in any of them. The home ec teacher found the cowbell last year. She's the wily sort who might put it in a big box to draw the stupid ones toward it. She's also very clever and knows that this is the oldest trick in the book. Perhaps it will be in a bag stuffed with tissue paper or a small box stuffed with newspaper so that it does not make a sound when it is shaken. Our principal pulls out a deck of cards. We do not know if it is the same deck he uses every year, but we hope it is. Half of us know that he loves this game. We think it would be fitting for him to keep the deck of cards in his desk all year round for safekeeping. The principal tells us that we can only play if we have brought something for the tree. We nod our heads in understanding. Every table pulls a card. Ace is high. The secretary's table goes first. They line up like Christmas lights. Four feminine faces, blinking in a dim sort of way. We do not want them to find the cowbell. That would ruin the fun. It must be later, after most of the gifts have been chosen. There must be time for us to consider the cowbell, to forget it exists, and then remember it again.
This is how the game is played. The first secretary chooses her gift. A bottle of red wine. We hoot and holler. This is not a drinking party, but some of us put alcohol under the tree because it is fun to say things like, Yes, please, and It's five o'clock somewhere. Now it is the second secretary's turn. She steals the wine from the line leader and tips the bottle back, as if to guzzle it in front of us. Ho ho! We can't get enough! The line leader takes another gift and discovers a felt toilet seat cover shaped like a reindeer. We giggle and look at our retired business teacher, who likes to make homemade things out of felt. She is also a Sunday school teacher at the local Baptist church, and she has been to the baptism of every saved soul in this room. Even the quiet atheists and the very singular Catholic among us view her as a symbol. None of us have ever heard her say anything cross or awkward. We have never heard her complain. She has never broken any rule. We would never believe she might behave differently at home. She's been retired for two years, but we still invite her to the Christmas party. We are reluctant to let her leave us. She belonged more than any of us, and she has never needed to prove herself. The third secretary does not take the toilet seat cover from her neighbor, but chooses to take her chances with the other gifts under the tree. Though we do not want her to find the cowbell, we jeer at her anyway. Careful we say. Choose wisely! And the principal watches as the secretary opens her gift. He watches as she pulls out a green scarf, knitted exquisitely, and we all gasp from the beauty of it. And we are all chattering to each other. Oh, what a nice scarf! Who made it? The basketball coach points at his fiancée and the female teachers pat her on the shoulders and compliment her work. The principal watches as the basketball coach beams. Then, he watches the fiancé's smile grow wider, and the fourth secretary steals the scarf. We laugh, and watch the third secretary pout and march toward the tree, shoulders slumped. Careful, we say. Choose wisely. The fourth secretary's gift is a tin of cookies. They look very much like the tin of cookies the school board left in our mailboxes this morning. Some of us know this is a joke, and the more intelligent teachers realize it is only a joke we would say to each other at games or in the teacher's break room. We would not make the joke here, at the Christmas party, which the school board paid for. It is not a good joke here, and we quietly eye each other for guilty faces. The secretaries go back to their table and give their gifts to their husbands. Our principal walks around the room and asks one of us from each table to pull a card from his deck, and so it begins again. Ace is high, and we laugh at the six-pack of beer decorated with reindeer antlers made of pipe cleaners, and we hoot at the whoopee cushion, and we pass around the green scarf and appreciate its softness, and we rub our stomachs when one of us opens a gift of apple butter. The history teacher pretends he does not care that we have already forgotten about the lottery tickets. And soon we are a buzzing hive of excitement, because all but four of us have stood in front of the tree. The principal smiles like a crescent moon. No more cards are drawn. There is only one table left. The history teacher, the basketball coach's fiance, the business teacher, and the Spanish teacher line up in front of the tree. It will be one of them. We cannot help but wiggle and jostle in our seats, aware of what is coming, aware of our energy. Soon we will see its golden form. The one who reveals the cowbell will shake it above them to make that terrible clang. The women will scream with laughter, and the men will roar. More cowbell! I need more cowbell! The one who reveals the cowbell 
will swing their arms wider, and there will be the banging clang of the cowbell mixed with the boiling roar of our voices. We will be an ocean, and we will forget ourselves again, and our own voices will be lost. We will be engulfed, and we will be baptized. The principal will hold up the arms of the one who reveals the cowbell, and we will clap our hands and stomp our feet and whistle with joy. He will smile his moon smile, and none of us will know his sacrifice, even as we reach our hands out and listen to the clanging of the cowbell. We will not know what he gave up for us, and we will not know that he would give anything to get it back. We know only the energy of our hands, which itch to clap again and again, and the energy of our tongues that lash in our mouths, eager to be free, and the energy of our toes that lurch in our shoes, and the energy of our knees that yearn to clank against each other. We are eager now. It will be one of them. Though we cannot say it, we would not know how to say it. We are thankful for this opportunity. It is a wonderful game. We look forward to it every year. Thanks again for slowing down and listening up with us today. We're hoping to be back on our two-week schedule again and put out another episode on January 26th. In the meantime, I'm going to keep asking for this, you guys. We'd love it if you wrote us a review on iTunes. Since our last episode, Arkanoid19 was kind enough to write us a nice review, so thank you, Arkanoid. If we get two more ratings, then we'll have an average rating for the podcast, which will help more people find out about us. So please help us out. Thanks again for slowing down and listening up with us today.